Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue, where we get the industry's best and brightest cyber defenders to share their experiences and tips on how you can better defend your assets and networks. everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me, or an IT or security pro, complexity is inevitable. And I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com Simone. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash S-I-M-O-N-E. This season is all about the color purple. We'll be bridging the gap between red and blue teams and combining their strengths to form purple teams. Join me as I meet with some of the very best purple teamers out there who are changing the way we do security on a daily basis. We're going to go ahead and explore their journeys, talk about their time from red and or blue teams, some of the challenges they faced, as well as some of the successes and benefits from coming together and forming one team to defend against cyber threats from all over the world. So let's go. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I am your gracious and humble host, Davin Jackson. This season, Hacker Valley Blue, season two, Bridging the Gap. We're going to talk about bridging the gap between red and blue to make purple. When I had to come up with the idea for this season, I had to find one of the movers and shakers in the community. I had to find my magic man. So if you haven't met this gentleman before, he is a CEO. He is, a move, like I said, a mover and shaker, just a great guy and a unicorn, as you can see. So, ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching, please welcome my guest, Bryson Bort. Bryson, how you doing? Every day is a holiday. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, man. I'm great. So, again, thank you for joining and being my guest on today's episode. Glad to see you are here in your unicorn attire. But for those who don't know who you are, why don't you just give a brief introduction into who you are? I thought I spent all those hours writing my very short bio of three sentences. Wasn't that supposed <laughs> to cover this? So, former Army officer, then I worked in the intelligence community, left that, started my own consultancy called Grim. Grim was my nickname in the IC. That was a consultancy, so your classic penetration testing consultancy. The difference, I think, was the breadth of what we do. A lot of pen testers, about to be mean, but mostly is looking at like kind of web app or traditional network penetration tests, whereas we do every kind of technology. You name it, we've done it. We have several large physical labs where we can bring things in. Automotive security, we were one of the first into to hacking cars and doing all of that. 2016, a very large retailer that rhymes with Argot came to me and asked me to build him an implant. And that was the birth of Scythe. So once with that request, I was like, I want to go do that. So in 2018, I spun out Scythe. Grim is still there functioning. Jen Tisdale is the CEO. They are doing awesome things. But my full time and focus is on Scythe. I'm also the co-founder of the ICS Village with Tom Van Norman. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. So most folks know us from DEF CON because we've been doing DEF CON for so many years. But on top of that, we do a lot of other things with the community and different government agencies so that we can educate folks on critical infrastructure. That's a lot we're going to get into. <laughs> but again, first and foremost, from one vet to another, thank you for your service. 
that's always important to me and I'm pretty sure to all our viewers and listeners. So you started off in the army and then you said you moved into intelligence. So obviously without getting into anything too crazy that will get both of us in trouble. What was that experience like? How was that transition from army intelligence into, I guess, the world of cybersecurity? I had a cybersecurity background and as much as that was not a term at all, I think I had a lot of the same childhood that a lot of us who got into this field, I was always interested in those kinds of things. And I would, anything that had ones and zeros or electricity that came anywhere near me and I was allowed to, I would tear it apart and deconstruct it. I really, probably my first hacking was trying to break the DRM on games or modify games as a kid. My programming skills blew up when in high school, I got my first graphing calculator because I was able to sit in every single class because I now had a school issued basically mini computer and I would design all these games. So I built like a street fighter. I built some really elaborate role-playing games all on a little calculator. So I was limited by what that thing could do, but that was really where I got the bug for programming and all of that. And then at West Point, I was a computer science major. I was actually the first brigade information systems officer. So the cadet S6 effectively for the campus and the post. So I had a background in all of this. When I went over into intelligence, that was my first time, though, really getting to see the edge of what was possible because I was no longer a blue teamer. I was now getting to be a part of building really interesting tools that do those kinds of things. And I don't know what more to say about that. It was really interesting. And I think I encourage everybody who gets the opportunity. I get asked this all the time on career progression, right? There's always about how to break into cyber. And that's a whole discussion. And we can talk about that too. And I covered a lot of those details actually in the talk I just gave last week at Texas Cyber Summit. But in terms of really getting to see the edge of what's possible, it's really only with government or the military that you're going to get to do that. And it's not because that kind of hacking is like illegal or verboten. It's just the skill sets that you get at, for that are not widely available. And they're not the kinds of things that most commercial companies are interested in. This is why we have object-oriented and later generation programming languages, because why would I do all the pain to like program and see when I can just use Rust or Java? Because it does all that for me. When you're building those kinds of offensive tool sets, you need to be down at the very particular part of a memory or the kernel with making something happen. And so that's just my shout out from a discipline side. That's a unique experience you're not going to get anywhere else. That being said, working with government is working with government and it has all of those things, which is why I eventually left. The way I always describe it is every golden cage rusts. I had the most fun of the most with the most missions that I did, but it was time to go and do something. And I wanted to do it more on my own terms, which is where I founded Grimm. That actually makes a lot of sense right there, especially for those who've dealt with government. But going back, you were doing things like fighting games on a calculator when I think the, my biggest success was like Snake or something like that. <laughs> so that either speaks to your talent or that was a very powerful calculator. <laughs> oh, no. So for example, like with the fighting game, one of the problems I had is, I mean, it was a single threaded processor. The AI, it would be like, it was very fast calculations of one move, then one move, then one move, then one move. There were limitations to the architecture of what I was doing. Still on a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was pretty cool. I agree. So again, so now you crafted your skills with the government. And again, I agree 100%. There are definitely a lot of people have their opinions about working with the government or working for the government. But I agree 100% that, yeah, there, there are certain things, especially when you get down to the nitty gritty of things in there, there are certain experiences or things that you will see that you will never 
<laughs> see uh, in the public sector. I didn't actually do tech. I was an aircraft mechanic, but I was even doing some of the stuff there. It was, oh, that's cool. And then you come out and it's like, all right, this is fine. This is great. And then you can't even talk about <laughs> most of it anyway. So it's just like, it's definitely an experience. There's one thing I can share. There are actually two unclassified things I can talk about. I was management. I ran everything and the success of all the things that we did continued to burgeon. And so one of the cool things that we did that I can talk about is we provided support to what was called the National Media Exploitation Center, NMEC, which is kind of like, well, what the hell does that mean? I always found media exploitation to be a strange phrase. But what it meant was it was basically battlefield forensics. And I had teams that were embedded in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what they did is they would follow the operators as they cleared an objective. And any of the phones, computers, random black boxes of technology that nobody knew what it was, that was our job to, on the ground, turn around the analysis or the analysis, pull the data for analysis so that they could immediately take that intelligence and move out from it. So that's something that's unclassified that was actually in my group. That sounds cool and stressful. You know, it's funny. I mean, you think about how hard it is to do forensics. Now try to do it with something that has a bullet hole in it. <laughs> yeah, but that, and then again, you're on the ground out there, probably mission critical, so no pressure. But could you reverse engineer this and figure this out? <laughs> so now moving on, you decided to start Grim, which is a cybersecurity company. I looked at the website and you're absolutely right. Some companies specialize in application security or network pen testing or social engineering, where it looks like Grimm seems to have everything. So what was that concept like of coming up with that and building that and then finding the talent of all these people? Because there is no one jack of all trades in pen testing, speaking from experience, no matter how hard I try. Yeah. So Grimm is coming up on its 10 year anniversary and Congrats. I started it by myself. I can still remember January 2013 sitting down there on a couch that I eventually threw away. With, thank God it's gone. And sitting there going like, all right, I used to be important. Weekend happened. Now it's day one at Grimm. Nobody cares that I exist. What do I do? I remember just sort of sitting there staring at the phone. And like I had all these grandiose ideas. Now what? The reality when you start a consultancy like that is I think for the most part is for the first two, three years until you catch the wind in your sales, you do whatever you can do. I had this grandiose idea around what I wanted Grimm to be initially, but the reality is I took any job I could get. At the end of the day, I just needed to keep the lights on and keep the idea going forward until I could get the work that I wanted to get at the rates that I wanted to. I mean, again, this is 10 years ago. This stuff was still not very common. There was a lot of breaking ground and explaining to people what penetration testing was, why security mattered, because it was not a, an assumed thing. It honestly was person by person as we brought folks in that they had additional interests or experiences or skill sets. And we we're just kind of like, oh, why don't we try to do that as a company? We've got this person who helped like Atlas, who in 2006 did the first security assessments of a smart meter deployment in the country. And we're like, wow, we're into industrial control systems. And hey, we're both interested in cars. Let's just start tearing apart cars and taking a look at that. And that was us with helping building up the car hacking village with Rob Lee Alley in the beginning. And it was just, again, it, they were born out of a combination of the experience, the interest and the opportunity. And we just continued to explore those. And as those became funded by customers, we were like, let's bring in more folks and train them. Because I mean, we were really pushing the edge of anybody doing a lot of this stuff. And so it's not like there was folks graduating from university from it. There weren't certs. There wasn't training. We had to build all of that ourselves, which then we started to turn around and offer out as training opportunities for the community. 
And I think that was something I was going to say next is one thing that I see Grimm does that stands out from a lot of other consultancies, and some are starting to do it now, is actually offering the training and training to the community as well as the employees. Unfortunately, a lot of times when you go into some of these jobs, they expect you to hit the ground running and they don't feel like training is important. But I see with your team over there, you really take make it a priority for that. Just speak to that for a little bit because... Maybe it sounds better coming from you, but I've been on the Sam the soapbox for a while screaming, train your employees, train your people, and you'll build better results. So I mentioned the Texas Cyber Summit, and that was the example I gave where we use education or certifications or whatever we think are the necessary experiences. And there's certainly lots of jokes about how people are like, you need to have something for 10 years that's only existed for five years, and it's for a beginner position. And Anytime we do that, we are failing ourselves because there's more work and more need than there are people, which means we need to invest in those folks. If you're a hiring manager, sure, I get HR finds it easier to check the box for you to go out and look for that stuff, but it's your choice to decide that you're going to make that investment in somebody. And for those of us who aren't hiring managers, that's something we can do with our peers. Most jobs really don't come through the cold call through the web. Most jobs come through relationships. And so if you know somebody who's adjacent, who's interested in getting into that, help them get into your company and volunteer to be their coach through it and afterward for months to help them get better and make that easier for them and your team to be a part of that. Again, we do not invest enough after we make the initial call. And that's the gap. As I noted with Grimm, we were finding new disciplines and research. And so there was no none of this. And so as we explored it, we constantly looked at how do we standardize this? How do we encapsulate that? So it's easier to bring other folks into it ourselves because no one else is going to. So Grimm really tried to be, I don't want to say elite in that kind of way, but we really were the bet, tried to be the best team of hackers. And I emphasize the team part because we crossed the Rubicon years ago where an individual could be the sole driver of anything. These things are too big. The software is too big. It's too complex. You need teams to do it. You need different disciplines to come together to be able to pull it together. And so we really try to bring the best team together. And part of what those kinds of folks really enjoy, of course, is getting to continue to learn. And so we had that built into the culture where that was something that we wanted to do. I honestly don't know when it tripped in my head to be so community focused, because I'll be honest, when I was in the intelligence community, I was the opposite of community focused. I was the classic IC guy who was like, we're the greatest thing of all time. And if only the commercial world knew how wonderful we were, they'd be just blown away. And I got to tell you how wrong I was. One, when I got out and saw all of the research, particularly these days that commercial is doing, I think government has a lot more to learn than the other way around. And that's the advice I give to every government official. If you're in the military, if you're in the government, stop sitting in your ivory tower get out and meet folks. And I know we're all like, oh, it's classified. And what I do is so special. You don't have to sit there and talk about that detail, but just get out and listen and ask questions and really hear what other things are going on because there is so much and nobody has the lead on it. And so again, I don't know when it tripped on when we became community focused. I guess it was really through the village collaboration that I was doing. Cause I mean, I was really a strong part of the car hacking village in the beginning of that. And then, I, I mean, the ICS Village came along the way, and then I really moved into that because I saw that they needed more. I've helped build other villages since. In some ways, I've kind of become one of the village guys, I guess. I don't know. I don't want to say the village people because everybody makes that joke. I hate that. Where I've helped a lot of other villages. In fact, I hope two of the ones that I have 
that are in the works do come to DEF CON next year that I've been helping to stand up. And I guess it was just through that where I really saw the Village experience being the best part of all the conferences I was at. Talks are okay, and I'm a speaker, but there's a certain limitation. I think you get to somebody lecturing with a PowerPoint versus getting hands-on with a passionate expert who's like, hey, let me show you how this works. Even if you know nothing, I will teach you something. I'll let you get hands-on keyboard and walk away with the kinesthetic learning and improvement from it. And I guess that just is where I got inspired with that whole community of other villages. That's where I pushed Grimm and Scythe. That is a significant part of what we do, where we're constantly giving free workshops and hands-on and labs, because I really think it matters. For one, like I said, I, you said you don't know when you became so engaged with the community, but I'm personally, I'm glad you did because then we would have never really met or hung out. <laughs> but I think to your point with the creating that hands-on experience, I think that's super important. And just being, especially when I got started, one of the first things I did when I looked at conferences is like, okay, one, how much is it going to cost? Two, what trainings or villages were out there? And then it was okay. And then I would literally plan how I would, what talks I would go to around what CTFs they had going on or whatever, because I, not only does it give you that hands-on experience, I think that's more of a networking type aspect where you get to meet different people. Obviously, when you're in a, in a training, obviously, or even in a talk, it's almost like a classroom setting. So there's not too much interaction until like towards the end. And even then it's still like maybe 15 minutes, if that, for Q&A. So I always like to see, okay, well, Let's see what's going on at the Lockpick Village, or let me see what CTFs they got going on, or let me see what's going on here. So I think it's really cool that you are, a, I guess we have to figure out, I don't know, village elder? I don't know. What to <laughs> village, yeah, I am a village elder. That is exactly, yeah, I'm a village elder and I'm helping bring up the next generation. I love doing that. So now moving on, you, you talked about starting site. One of the things that you see, especially coming from the offensive side of things, is a lot of companies, I don't know if it's just ingrained in the culture or whatever, but there was always a divide, especially in the beginning with red team versus blue team, us versus them. I remember when I finally got into pen testing, I started off at a consultancy. It was more like a pen test puppy mills, so to speak, where it was just like week after week. But I remember walking into the first couple and going, geez, why don't they like us? Like they really, they don't want to help us. They're making our lives difficult, whatever. As I gained a little bit more experience, I started to understand, oh, they think we're out to get them. And I would try to extend that olive branch, even if it's just for a week or two, just saying, look, I'm not here. Let's try to work together. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Again, it was short term. And then when I started moving into being like an in-house security team for a couple startups, I ran into those same difficulties as well. Same red team versus blue team or security versus development teams. I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, why do you think that was so hard to break? And then for you, what was the light bulb moment for you where you were like, okay, no, we really need to bring these two together? I have a lot of answers to that. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that problem. And that's where I think I initially became well-known was challenging the status quo. As you and I were joking before we started recording, that was not well-received for a long time and not even in a constructive debate way. Like people got really nasty. And it's interesting how much in the end of the day, regardless of the discipline, we as humans all have some innate resistance to change. Change is scary. So first of all, what is security? Security from a business perspective is assurance. So what is penetration testing and red teaming? It is quality assurance. We are testers. And if you look at other places where quality assurance and testing is a part of it, there's also that same challenge. At the end of the day, quality assurance 
comes and says, hey, this wasn't right and it needs to be fixed. And that can be anything from a tactical fix of an end product to where it's a part of continuous process improvement so that the outcome continues to improve. And that's an area where I definitely see still lacking in security is we're not looking at it as process improvement. We're still mostly, this is a joint challenge, but where we're more, we just identify the errors and gaps at the end and we tactically fix those and then on to the next thing with no substantial change. And so that's a natural tension that exists in any process where people are involved. So we in security are not unique in that, but where I think we have a problem is because this space is so much like black magic voodoo. Most people really don't know about what hacking is or penetration testing. It's that thing up in the clouds that the guy who thinks he's God does. And I really do say guy, because I mean, most of it is white men who are have terrible personalities were doing this kind of stuff. So let's throw them explicitly under the bus. That increased the adversarial component. So not only do we have a natural tension from that setup, we now have people who are being assholes and are driven by ego. How technically cool am I? Look at this. That's not helping anybody. We don't need the pen test or the red team to just win. Sure, that feels good, but that's not the point. The point is, how are we giving a comprehensive assurance of security to the business, to who needs this, who has to go away and do this? And then what's the other part of this process? How do most of these things go? Because you do the pen test, you do the red team in kind of a black box approach. You set up the scope to start, you disappear and do stuff. After one to three weeks, you show up and you drop a huge report on them and you're like, and you might get a you might have a brief out where you're like, these are all the things summary. And then pretty much though, it's that report that they have to go and mine through and figure out how to solve what you found. They already had day jobs. You were already committed to working 40 hours a week. And now you've just given them more work. Peace out. And the joke we always had on the offensive side was it was frustrating for us to come back a year later and go, it's going to be the same problems. But think about why that is. That's not because they didn't care. They didn't have the ability to even consume the information we were giving them in that intervening year because there was real work that already was there. I mean, they're already booked for 40 hours a week until you threw additional problems on them. And so that was the final piece of it, whereas this is not a good way to do this. We cannot be ego-driven. We cannot be win-driven. And we can't continue to just create work that we're throwing on top of people when they already have a day job. Agreed. I think the turning point for me was when I was working on an AppSec team and I couldn't quite understand, again, the whole divisiveness with the developers. It wasn't even so much the blue team. That was another battle for another day, but the developers were really, they really hated us. <laughs> so we were, security was in one building and the development teams were in another building. And I actually went over to development teams for two weeks during one of their sprints and just kind of sat put my cube there. I did my work there, but I sat with them and I would in earshot of their sprint meetings and stuff like that to help get a better understanding of some of the pressures that they face. I think it helped me become a better pen tester from the communication standpoint, because it goes, now I go, listen, I know you probably got all these deadlines and the VP is probably somewhere in a cavity somewhere that you don't want them to be hounding on you to get this stuff done. And then, oh yeah, by the way, we also want you to start working on this next feature. And then it turned into, like you said, the report is inevitable. You drop the report, but then I would probably add like maybe like an addendum to it or like a letter, like a shorter letter that just says, all right, look, these are the ones you really need to focus on first. So maybe during your next sprint, security is supposed to be, you're supposed to focus on security in maybe 10 to 20% of your sprints. 
and I do that there. But so when you do focus on these first, and I would try to go to bat for them. I would go to their bosses sometimes and say, hey, they might need a few more people to come help because these are the issues got fixed, especially when you're dealing with certain things like compliance and PCI and stuff like that. I tried to make that one big happy family, but somehow I always ended up finding a way to piss them off again and we would go back to square one. <laughs> no, let's also just tackle something you just said there. You just mentioned compliant. That's the first time we said that. And that's another one where most of us in security have a very pejorative connotation of compliance. It's like, oh, compliance, like, ugh. no, 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 look. Again, going back to business focus, compliance is an existential requirement for business to function. They don't even get to pay you money or talk to you if compliance is not done first. That's what they need to operate legally. The gap is compliance is not security. Compliance might have flavor of security, but it is a checklist. And checklists are not security. Security is a data-driven approach of rationally going threat to risk, what do I accept or mitigate? Agreed. Like I said, that would be, that's a whole different, <laughs> that's, I don't think we have enough time to get into those challenges. <laughs> Bring me back in a few months. We'll just have an entire compliance episode. <laughs> yeah. So only I'll uh, make it fun. Agreed. Hey, I'm pretty sure you have another unicorn outfit or something. I do. In fact, I planned on surprising another one later in this episode as a joke. Hey, see, you can't spoil it, but <laughs> you don't know what I'm doing yet. You just know there's something else. Okay. Suspense. <laughs> okay. So now you see all the challenges that we were just talking about. You see some of the issues with the red versus blue and, and trying to bring that all together. And you decide to start a second company that kind of answers or tries to answer some of those questions or face some of those challenges. So now what was that experience like starting Scythe? I know you said you're not, you don't really run Grim like that anymore, but what was that experience of in the beginning where you're starting a new one while still working with this one and then trying to make them, I guess, coexist for, so to speak? We had rich tradition and we had it standardized. So we had all the process inside Grim already for doing internal research and development. Scythe, which was named Project Crossbow at the time, a playoff of Target. My NDA is expired, so I can say whatever I want now. We already had that part. That part was easy. The hard part was company was literally named after me. How do you hand over leadership when you are the namesake and it had been built around you? And I think we were probably 25 to 30 engineers at that time back in 2016. So I spent a lot of time thinking through what would need to happen to replace me and bring in a CEO and empower that CEO and that leadership where while I was still there, I wasn't the elephant in the room and they really did have autonomy because it doesn't make any sense to hand over control, but not really hand over control. You have to empower that kind of leadership just the same as in any organization. The more you empower your own folks, the better they're going to be. So I really basically tried to fire myself as quickly as possible. I think I'd spent about 10 months planning that transition. Meantime, started building up the requirements and kicked off the architecture and development for Project Crossbow. We co-developed it with Target for two years. And meanwhile, Grimm grew up on its own. And what I realized through my journey, because part of was not just, hey, I'm doing this R&D. And at the end of the day, we were really just building a red team focused product at that time. So take out all this purple stuff that comes later. But at the time, it was just how do I build a red team product to be more flexible? Because that's there was nothing else that did that. Cobalt Strike's a great implant, but it can only be used by a professional and it can only do what it, it can do. And I saw the ability, like, I want to be able to make it easier for anybody to replicate 
threat behaviors in a realistic way. So the technical foundation was there to later capture where I pushed the philosophy. But at that time, that's not how we were thinking. And we, I was very much just, I need to make this client happy. And then I was started to go out and try to understand who else might want something like this. And that's when I realized I really didn't know what I was doing because I knew what I was building, but an engineering perspective of what you're building and going and explaining that to somebody else is not how it works. People are interested in talking in value proposition. I don't care what you're building. How does it help me? And I was kind of like, I could speak to it technically, but I couldn't bridge that. And I'm not exaggerating. It was probably took me about 500 meetings where word by word, phrase by phrase, I would figure out how to bridge that communication divide. Uh, the metaphor I used to describe it is if you can imagine somebody who has invented a car and everybody's using horses and you're going like, so what I've built is this car. And they'd be like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what a car is. Is it it's like a horse, right? Yeah, it's like a horse, but it has these rubber tires that are round on it. And they'd be like, so I'm putting rubber horseshoes on my horse? I don't understand. It was that kind of bridging the gap that I had to do because what we built didn't exist and it was a new concept. So that was where I realized I really didn't know what I was doing. I learned some of it, but that's why I decided to spin it out in 2018 because there are people who are very successful at having done this. And why learn the hard way when I can bring them in and have them be a part of my team to teach me. And so Ron Gula, who co-founded Tenable, you might have heard of Nessus, and Dmitry Alperovich, who co-founded CrowdStrike, might have heard of them. They helped me spin it out of Grimm into becoming Scythe. And that was my first board. And I sat at the feet of two very successful entrepreneurs in this space and a whole great list of angels who also had been founders and had been successful in their own entrepreneurial journey. And they taught me. And I asked them all of the questions because it was fantastic that I had this kind of talent to be able to advise me and coach me. I think that's priceless in itself to have those minds in the room that you could reach out to and speak to. It speaks and they to were invested. Right? They weren't just well, like yeah. it wasn't a 30 minute phone call where they're like, hey, right. Grayson, let's say words and advice. No, they'd given me money. They actually cared what they told me helped. Absolutely. And then again, which goes into another thing about mentorship, but that's another soapbox for another day too. So let's see, so we have compliance mentorship that we need to come back to. So you get the guidance of these brilliant minds, you get the angels, you get everybody to come on board. You start to translate the differences between horse to car. And now you come out with Scythe and you said you launched it in what, 2018? So you launched that in 2018. And what was the initial response from the community or the clients? Because again, you're stepping out into something that's the unknown. So now how do you sell that to someone who doesn't even think they may need it? In 2018, the first question was, who are you? What is this? That's actually, that was the catalyst for when I decided to go and do public speaking. I think folks are used to, most folks have seen me speak at this point, but I haven't been doing it that long. And it was solely to help make it easier because if the first question isn't, who are you? That makes it a lot easier than to have a discussion about, well, what does it do? That was literally the reason I got out and started speaking. And then again, it tied back into where I started adapting my speaking and then started doing a lot of workshops and teaching that I do because of the community focus. But the original goal was just so people know who I am. So it's easier to be able to talk about what we do. But the initial response was literally like, who are you? Why do I care? What? And I started with the community that I knew. So I was very much at the practitioner hacker level. I'd say our first real debut was at DerbyCon. We were one of the booths and it was me explaining our idea to a lot of other practitioners who had no purchasing authority and saying hi to other people at booths who might and just iterating from there. Our first customer 
was John Strand at Black Hills. So I'll never forget that. And that was one of those conversations that had been running for a while. And then it all came down to a final conversation with him and Joff Thire and a handshake over the piano back in the corner of DerbyCon that closed our first customer at Scythe. That's amazing. And now you went from a handshake deal at a piano at a conference, and now you have integrated and partnered with several other companies, which one is including our sponsor for this season. This podcast is sponsored by PlexTrack, the proactive cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform, bringing red and blue teams together for better collaboration and communication. PlexTrack empowers teams to communicate findings between red and blue teams electronically for rapid remediation, centralize remediation efforts, and automate ticket generation for faster, more efficient workflows, facilitate tabletop exercises, purple teaming engagements, breach and attack simulations, and more. A better security posture begins and ends with PlexTrack. Claim your free month of PlexTrack and get a copy of our blue team content bundle at PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. Again, that's PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. So Bryson, I looked through, when I was talking with PlexTrack and looking through their stuff, I also see that Scythe has integration with, with PlexTrack. So I guess you would be the perfect person to ask how PlexTrack does help with purple teaming and how it helps you day to day and how Scythe also helps PlexTrack. Sure. So I talked about the DerbyCon story where I, I met folks at other booths. So I was at a Wild West Hacking Fest in Deadwood, and we were at this booth next to this other one that had all of these purple colors. And there was his name PlexTrack above it. And we were like, hey, let's go over and chat with them. So I met Dan DeKloss, who's the founder of PlexTrack. And we really hit it off. We're actually friends. Like we text, we went skiing together this year at a group skiing thing that I put together. And I love that guy. He is humble. He is introspective. He is a great guy. And so where PlexTrack came in was really a natural fit. So my original goal with Scythe was I'm going to build the ability to drive all these threat behaviors but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of effort on the reporting and the analytics, which is a choice. And the reason I did is I figured everybody already has that kind of thing. You have a SIM if you're buying me. So I'll pump the data directly into your SIM so that you can identify where preventative detective controls are not working or are working and being able to refine those and measuring response of IT security staff. FlexTrack, of course, is fantastic because it does all of the reporting and the analytics. So it can take that data and allow you to look at your purple team process over time, measure different components of it and slice it a lot of different ways. They also do the report writing aspect. So that's an area where, particularly for a lot of pen testers, that's incredibly painful. That's probably the least favorite part of the job. But as we described, the most important, because that's where you're communicating the results so that somebody can take them and improve from them. And personally, I think PlexTrax can go even further than almost all of us here, because I see the value of their platform being even beyond security. It's the kind of platform that other folks in the organization, I mean, I'm not even just IT, at the end of the day, that kind of value with doing that, the data and analysis and report writing can apply to almost any business function. So I personally think that what Dan's got there is going to be bigger than a lot of the things we see in cybersecurity, personally. So there you go. And you've heard it from now the purple unicorn himself. <laughs> so thank you for that answer. And again, thank you to PlexTrack for sponsoring this season of Hacker Valley Blue. You started from Piano deal. You moved on. Uh, you're integrating with PlexTrack and Scythe has become a well-known name in the industry. So now you do a lot of other things. I see Scythe is mapped with MITRE. There's a lot. I spoke in last season with Christopher Peacock with the threat emulations and things like that. What is the day-to-day -day there? It sounds like there's, in my mind, I just see just a bunch of different 
almost like labs <laughs> and a bunch of people just trying to figure things out because for something that has so many moving parts and so many integrations and again, dealing with stuff like the MITRE attack, which I'll let you explain what that is shortly. I don't know. In my head, I just see a bunch of, it's, almost, it's crazy because even though it's cybersecurity, I see like lab coats, everybody just running around with like different ideas and clipboards and stuff like that. So am I somewhat accurate there? I think I understand the question. So first I want to give a shout out to Chris Peacock. He leads our detection engineering part of what we do at Scythe because again, just finding all the problems is a fraction of it. Being able to fix those problems is key. And so all of the threat intelligence and emulation that we put out includes detection engineering to be able to defend against it so that you really are remediating for that. And he is the number two Sigma contributor in the entire world. So Chris is amazing. Love having him on board. So you have Chris and his team over there. You have the stuff where you're mapping with MITRE. Oh, you know. MITRE. Yeah, why don't we cover MITRE? I knew the company MITRE from a long time ago. I've actually, I worked with them in the IC too, but MITRE attack was not something I'd heard of. I first learned about it in 2018. That's when I also first heard about Caldera. And so we reached out and it was Black Hat 2018, had a meeting with uh, Blake Strom, AKA Mr. Attack. I think he's over at Microsoft now. And we compared notes. And I think there's probably no bigger cheerleader of MITRE attack than me. In fact, they've invited me to attack on dress as the unicorn to be a part of additional speakers and festivities. Yeah. I've spoken there a couple of times as well. So I have a really strong relationship with what they're doing. And personally, I think MITRE ATT&CK is one of those life-changing, generation-changing events that happened for us in cybersecurity. Previous to that, there was no common vernacular to agree to on anything. They put that together in that way. Now, that being said, it has been heavily abused, but the idea is still a good one. It's just, of course, how some people want to use it. And the failure in using MITRE ATT&CK is turning it into a bingo card. I have checked that we have stopped initial access. This is not going to, credential theft is not going to happen. Again, security is not a checklist. It's a data-driven approach. There are a lot of ways to do those things. And the key part is if you want better detection engineering, it's the correlation of events. So the way I describe it is think of attack as a periodic table. And each one of those boxes represents an element, simplistically. So you might say, I have looked at hydrogen. And if you ever want to get started with making attack real in your environment, Atomic Red Team by Red Canary, free, easy to use, and it does exactly what it describes. I mean, it actually even ties into the periodic table view of atoms. It's an atomic view of that thing. And so it gets you started, but what it's not going to get you to is building better detection engineering because it's a correlation. Command line access by itself doesn't mean anything, but command line access that leads to the run DLL32.exe doing this thing that actually leads directly to network traffic, that correlation is curious. And that ties into how we do want to use it like a periodic table, which is I put those elements in a certain order and the conclusion is a chemical equation. Two parts hydrogen plus one part oxygen equals water. And I deal with water differently than I deal with hydrogen or oxygen separately. And a perfect example like this, if I can take a minor like sales dig, is I just kicked out a breach and attack simulation tool from a customer who'd been using them for several years. So it isn't like they just had a brief period of time with it. They built their entire defense on this concept. At the end of the day, most of those tools are just checklists. And so they had built hydrogen and they built oxygen and we walked in with a real adversary emulation plan and blew all their controls out of the water. And they were just, what? Can you imagine as a client being like, we spent this much money for two years and we built everything around this and that's all we got? It blows your mind. 
because they're using it like a checklist. You can't do that. It's hard. It takes driving it with realistic data and realistic data is the way attackers use it. I do this thing, not because I'm just checking the box that I'm doing reconnaissance. I'm doing it because that data informs the next step. If I have credentials, I use the credentials. I didn't just say, did I steal credentials? Next step, I actually steal credentials and use them. And if you're not doing that, you're not building the correct detection engineering that maps to the attacker. And here's the fun part for the blue team. If you start getting on that, and again, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Trust me, I do it. I know how hard it is. You will start to catch future attacks. And that's where, we're always, where we always wanted to go. You will not stop O'Day. Nobody can stop O'Day. Initial access is going to happen. But what you can do is start to catch new attack campaigns because those behaviors overlap. They absolutely overlap. There's not a lot of novel, there's not 100% novelty from attack chain to attack chain. And so you're going to start to catch them within a few steps. Might not be the first step, but it might be like step number five, which is better than you got before. And you're going to start catching tomorrow, today. I'm going to tell them to clip that one. That was a good one. <laughs> but I love that answer because I think the goal for security as a whole is to find a day to be proactive and not reactive. And I think that's the best answer I've heard so far thus far. So kudos to you on that one. You talked about that. You talked about everything with the lab coats and everything and answered it so eloquently. So thank you. But you did talk on something and we're going to shift gears here. You talked on about ICS and how you run the ICS Village. And the reason why that intrigued me is because I interviewed Leslie Carhart last season, and we talked about one of the misconceptions with blue teaming with ICS stuff is that they don't patch stuff and why. And she explained if we did, we could actually break the controls because they have to rely on sometimes outdated and systems. So now coming from a purple team perspective, how do you implement that into a system that almost has to be deliberately unsecure. So 25% of the electricity that is consumed in the United States is by asset owners who use my platform for purple teaming. So that's a win. One fourth of the US is covered by our stuff. But, and how we do that is, let's break down what ICS architecture is and also what it isn't. ICS does not actually just depend on ICS. And focusing on that is a, a fraction of the problem. Turns out, IT, which runs business operations, is absolutely critical to being able to run critical infrastructure. Great example of that, 2012, Saudi Aramco. The Iranian attack on them was on their IT infrastructure, and that brought everything to a halt, not because they affected anything in operational technology, but because the entire business infrastructure turned to paperweights overnight. I don't have to directly impact OT to impact it. Colonial Pipeline, same thing. There was anything, never anything direct on the OT. It was IT only, and they made that decision to shut everything down. So the most common threat vector to OT actually comes through the IT environment. It's the easiest way in. It's all internet accessible. It's folks doing what they do. It's a standard breach. And then the challenge that I have as an attacker is, how do I pivot through the environment to finding the way into the OT environment? And there is always a way in. And here's the fun part. I do put my attacker headset on a little too much. So I start talking like it's fun. And from a defender perspective, it's like, that's not fun. That is the opposite of fun. Don't say that. So the fun part is that the higher level operational technology space, I call it the beachhead. We wrote a whole blog on this. Actually, Megan Samford, who is the chief product security officer over at Schneider Electric, wrote a blog for us. She's on our advisory council. It's defining the beachhead, which is your human machine interface, HMIs. And what an HMI is like in the Florida water hack that happened last year, 
where somebody came in and got access to the HMI through you know, essentially a remote software. And the HMI is built to just do whatever it's told and tell everything below it what to do. And you don't have to do any additional recon because it's all in the HMI. It's just this graphical representation of the OT environment with the clear understanding of how to implement it, how to affect it. And so that slider that went to the right on that, that was telling a programmable logic controller, a PLC, to open up and release lie directly into that water supply. Correction, into that water, because I, I do want to be clear, there is a manual safety check after that. So it wouldn't have been, it wasn't a direct threat, but to affect that change. So here's the thing you mentioned with the Leslie Carhart interview, I can't patch these things. Well, think about an HMI is an HMI is running perhaps a Microsoft Windows operating system from two generations ago. When they designed it, they're like, Windows NT is what we've got. Windows XP is what we have. Windows 7. And it's built for that, and it's custom built for that, and it wasn't built to update the operating system. It was built to be exactly that way and have a long life cycle in operational, the operational environment. So it's perfect to take over and then to tell everything to do. And then you have the next layer, which is all the like actual operational technology that changes and affects the environment physically. And that's the biggest thing when we're talking about industrial control systems is this isn't just this isn't about data, which is what IT does. This is about affecting changes to the physical environment, which is where things get particularly scary because it's not, oh, my reputation. You have naked pictures of me. It's, oh, no, I don't have clean water and we're all going to die. It's, it's a substantially different problem set. And so how we push purple teaming is we help bridge the cultural divide, which a lot of these asset owners have because IT is what we all know and understand. The OT environment, as it has increasingly become computerized, is still lagging in that understanding. It's a different set of folks who've been doing this stuff. And so there's that same education and culture that we need to build and trust like we did in IT 10 to 15 years ago. That's what ICS is grappling with now. And so having a way to easily be able to win a purple team, which my definition of a purple team, collaborative milestone driven environment. Everybody typically thinks about red plus blue, and that's a basic piece. But the core part of that process is really we work together to agree to set milestones that we're going to go through in an exercise. And we know what those are so that we can check in, refine and work together and improve it. And I think it's bigger than red plus blue. I think other business functions, we want to bring them into those exercises to improve that education and awareness and results as well. In the OT environment is a perfect example of that because OT is by definition not IT. And so bringing them in and using the exercise to bridge that cultural divide where the collaboration and communication is an innate part of the planning and the exercise and the results itself helps do that. And that's where we've been working. Okay. So that, and which is going to go to, I guess, to my follow-up question, because I mean, I think you'd be the person to ask seeing that you said 25% of the country uses your products and you just talked about it there. In electric consumption only. Electric Not, consumption. If I had 25% yeah. of the country using this, I'd be probably very well off. <laughs> yeah. Not quite there. But how do we get there? How do we get more companies to embrace that change rather than just using it as a buzzword and have the patience to actually reap the, re the rewards because sometimes you'll have, I've literally worked in a company and I'm not going to say who, but I literally worked at a company where they felt they were going to make a purple team by basically sitting the red team and the blue team together. And there was like in a cube and there was like a little divider between us and we could talk to each other over, over the divide. And then you have some who say they want to do it, but then I guess when they don't see the results that 
they had in their mind that they were looking for, they want to blow that whole idea up. So how do we get them to embrace it, invest in it, and then be patient for it to actually bear fruit? So the starting point to any Purple Team anywhere, in fact, any change anywhere, Purple Team just being one of them, is leadership buy-in. And there are two kinds of companies, and it all comes down to those two kinds of leadership. Leadership cares, leadership doesn't. Leadership doesn't care, don't bother. Don't waste your effort. It's not going to happen. I like to think where you and I were hanging out last, well, not last because you and I hung out in Atlanta a few months ago too, but where we really got a chance to hang out was a Sands Hackfest last year. And my keynote for Sands Hackfest was all around how you can use this process to help educate and get that buy-in, how to do it in a smaller way to build up to it and how to think to communicating that to get the business buy-in. So there are things we can do, but at the end of the day, if business does not buy in, it's not going to happen. It's absolutely necessary. The Purple Team process can help build that momentum once you've got that, but you really can't do it without that buy-in to start. That's the part that's frustrating for, again, People on the ground like me or like you once were where you want that company that you work for. You want them to succeed and you want them to be the most secure. And they brought you in for a reason because of your interest or your yeah. love. But Davin, you can't push rope. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. It can come along with you if you pull and they want to go with you, but you can't push it. The part from the tool side of this, it is responsibility as vendors to build tools that are as easy to use for you in your workflow as we can. But we are the second step. My tool can't solve leadership and culture. No tool can. And I know you feel it because sometimes you deal with people who work at security teams of major breaches. And sometimes you have people and they're like, man, I, I try to tell them and they wouldn't listen, whether it's Uber or Target or wherever. And it's, I just had this feeling and, and I kept saying it and they just didn't want to do it or they didn't see the they didn't see the value in it. And it makes you feel for them. Or when you see a breach and you're like, man, I know someone who works here, and it's like, oh, going to have it's going to be a hell of a night for them. But at the end of the day, like you said, yeah, if you can't get leadership to buy in, but then when leadership doesn't buy in and when the inevitable happens and then heads start to roll, it's never so much them that didn't buy in. And I think that's the part that really sucks is like, you can't walk up to them and say, told you so you could, but you probably get in trouble. But then you're also going to probably get in trouble anyway, when they get breached and they're like, why wasn't it secure? And you're like, well, we told you that this was going to happen. But Davin, what is the most powerful thing you can vote with anywhere? With your feet. So if that's yep. what they are, if that's what they're like, there are plenty of other places that would love to have you. You don't have to stay where they don't believe in you. Definitely. No, I totally understand that one. It's just... Like I said, it was just one that, and I've, I, don't get me wrong, I've left. I've left. <laughs> you know I've how many companies years. I left? The list is long and distinguished. <laughs> you know, you know, I've left because it's kind of like, so what am I here for? You ask, you said you want me to do this or you want me to be a part of this. And I get here and it's, no, you don't want me to be a part of this. You just want someone here that you could say, oh, we have a pen tester to sign off to say you're compliant. And that was one thing we refused to do at Grimm because we'd have folks to do that. They'd be like, yeah, we're just looking for an attestation letter. Meh, that's not us. Yeah. And again, that, we're going to add that to the list of another ranty episode. But <laughs> okay, so we're about to, we're going to wrap up. So hobbies outside of your wonderful, illustrious unicorn costume collections, and you're doing your village elderly duties. What are some of the things that Bryson likes to do in the spirit, in the times where he actually has a free moment? When the pandemic first kicked off, I was trapped at home like everyone else. I like to cook and I had to cook. So that's when I spun up Unicorn Chef. 
So we've raised over $40,000 for different charities and we bring in just a different guest each week. I've expanded that to including other staff. So there's other folks who help run those episodes too. But at the end of the day, we were just different week, different guests. They bring the recipe, we cook it together and we publish that and do it and raise money for charity. I love to cook. So that was a way of doing that. It's taken a bit of a hiatus because I have been on the road a ton. So I haven't had the ability to organize all that together. But yeah, food is a huge hobby for me. Also, I used to be really into competitive jujitsu. I stopped doing that because I didn't feel comfortable going and rolling for two hours with folks like to get back into that. So that's something else. One of the reasons I was no longer in the army is I got hurt during the war. So my back is pretty much broken. And so I got into yoga a long time ago and I've done that long enough where I, that was another thing I did over the pandemic is I used to teach yoga. Again, my schedule has preempted that. And then I've also had some other other physical challenges because as I've gotten older, things have been breaking on their own. I think that's the definition of getting old is when you start having to negotiate with body parts. It's like, all right, I'm about to take a step forward. And then you're like, it doesn't happen. You look at your leg and you're like, I think I gave an order. What's going on there? And you start debating with like your knee. And your knee's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And you're just, it's the first time that part of you doesn't do what you think it's going to do. You start negotiating. Look, if you just let me get up now, I promise you'll, we'll sit still for the next three hours. (laughs) I just need to get up right now. Okay. But yeah. Even sleeping can be considered exercise because you don't know what you're going to hurt the next day. Yeah, I got out of the bed the other day and I was like, I literally said, I didn't even say ow, I said how, because I got up in my back and I was like, how? And my wife was like, what? I'm like, nothing, my back hurts and I don't even know what I did. (laughs) But to your, whenever that starts up, we'll probably have to coordinate something like, I don't cook that much, but my wife does custom cakes. So we'll probably have to do one of those one day where she can bake and stuff. We have a hostess who is a, a master baker herself and... That would be a great episode for the two of them to do. I do not bake. I'm a cook, not a bake. So you like to cook. She likes to bake. I like to eat. I think it all works out. (laughs) Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Final question. What advice would you give to anybody who might be on the fence about either getting into this field or making that jump into purple teaming, feeling that it might be overwhelming. One piece of advice would you give? In terms of getting into the field, I mean, you're not getting into purple team directly. That's not very few positions that are purple. It's mostly you're either blue or red and more likely you're IT or you're blue. Red is more of a mid-career progression. This was also, I covered this in my talk last week where a lot of folks think of offense as the pinnacle. Offense is a mid-career progression. It is not better. At the end of the day, you're a tester. That's your job. So what I would say to anybody who's looking to get into cybersecurity, this is a job. We take this very seriously. And our job is now increasingly becoming a part of the defensive society as it works today. So it's not just nerd and computers, but that's the result of what we all do in all of our pieces. But it's a job. And it's a job in a market that is growing and has great security, great benefits, and good pay. So When you look at that for all the other opportunities are out there, that is a very compelling one. Now, it is one that I believe has had more success than the maturity has earned. I already did the white guy asshole throw under the bus earlier. And that is still, I think, something that we're tackling with. We have that white male dominated engineering nerd culture, and it is not quite as opening as it should be, which is why it's so important that we don't just look at this as a diversity challenge. It's one of inclusion. Yes, we want to be lower the gatekeeping for you to get into it. But once you're here, we want you to feel safe and an active contributor to it. And that is something we are all responsible for in this community. So how to get started in that? Networking, make friends, 
do online CTFs. Going to conferences is expensive, but almost every city has a B-sides. Those are not expensive. And that is a great way to get exposed to the community, make friends, get some hands-on with some things and learning about it. At the end of the day, you be, there are jobs in cybersecurity that do not require IT. You don't have to be technical. There are those kinds of things. But I think there's no harm in learning to program is something that will serve you in almost any job anywhere, like a basic level of understanding programming. And that can sound like a really general requirement. So same way I learned it by I wanted to build games on a calculator because that's all I had available to me. Pick a project, build something in a program. doesn't have to be complicated. Start simple and then build from there. And that helps you drive as your interests drive to doing it. And then the programming naturally becomes a part of it. And then from there, you'll start to learn about how a computer works, how that host functions, how to do networking. And that'll make you stand out in any job that you go for. Agreed. A hundred percent. Thank you, Bryson. Like I said, I know you said you've been super busy and I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your experiences with us over here at Hacker Valley Blue. If you want, you could tell the people how to find you and where to learn more about Scythe. It's not all hard. I'm about to go to Tactical Edge in Santa Marta, Colombia, which is a beach town near Medellin. And I will be spending an entire week on the beach with 60 South American CISOs doing different workshops and talks. So it's not all bad. It's not like I everywhere I have to go is a terrible place. Yep, that face. <laughs> I, right afterward, I have to go directly to Vegas because I'm one of the keynotes for World Congress. That I'm not as thrilled about, but... Santa Marta sounds wonderful. Thank you, Edgar Rojas, for tackling I mean, yeah. investigating for that. I don't think there's too many places that would Santa Marta, and then it's oh Vegas. But <laughs> yeah, I have to go to Vegas every year for Black Hat and DefCon. Having to go there more than that is is not on the bucket list. I'm easy to find. Bryson Bort, incredibly easy to Google and find. I am very active on Twitter. Occasionally, I will probably say something technical on Twitter. But mostly I just make fun of a lot of things because it's so easy to do. So if you want to find a laugh every day, that's pretty much what I will offer on Twitter. I'll add this. If Bryson is in your town and offers to come out, to offers and invites anybody to come out and hang out, yeah, do it. Do it. You will not regret it. The conversations are amazing. The last time we got together, I mean, we talked a little bit of shop and then got into Care Bears and unicorns and stuff like that. But again, and then I left and then there was like a rotisserie chicken in a wine cellar, a wine cellar or something like <laughs> you won't regret it. So if he's in your town and he says, hey, I'm in town and I'm inviting people to come hang out, answer the call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do that on Twitter. So if I'm going somewhere and I have the opportunity, because like sometimes I don't last Last week, I was doing a CISA workshop in Boston, flew in late, was delayed in weather, got there an hour before it, then was supposed to fly out that night. So I had no time to organize those things. But if I do, I'll reach out and be like, hey, I'm going to be in Boston in two weeks. Does anybody want to get together for drinks and or happy hour? And by the way, alcohol is not forced. When I say drinks, I just mean water and soda. If you want to drink, that's your thing. So never any pressure. Just trying to bring a good group of folks together for us to, again, the networking and learning is the key to all of this. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an awesome time. And sir, like I said, we met officially last year, but I hold you in a high regard and I thank you so much. And I appreciate you. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll even do it back. See? So ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching, this has been another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I've been your host, Davin Jackson. This has been Bryson Bort. And again, I thank you all. Make sure to tune in to the next episode and also check us out on Discord. Until next time, everybody stay safe out there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hacker Valley Blue. 
If you did, please remember to like it, subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends and colleagues and family members, get it all out there and make sure you tune in for the next episode. Also remember to join our Discord server and you can talk to me and some of the other Hacker Valley family. So make sure you go check us out over there too. And I will see you next time. Peace.